Amen. 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 Thanks, Jay. Grateful for Jay and his work and his ministry. Today, I am most grateful that Jay had to follow the preschoolers and not me, um, because that was a tough act to follow. They were uh, really cute, and most of you are here to see them and not me. Um, but uh, we're grateful for, for them and the kids' ministry. Thank you for all of you. Uh, most of them are out there, but those of you that may be in here that serve with our kids in Sunday mornings, Kids Adventure in various ways, thanks for doing that, for your ministry to them, for your care for them. Uh, that's an important ministry to see those kids grow up and come to know and follow Jesus. Really appreciate that. Uh, if, if you have your Bible, I encourage you to open up to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1 today. We're kind of transitioning our from one series to another. We had that Work Matters series that we finished up last week, which was great. Uh, we were in there for about five weeks. This week we're transitioning to it during Advent. We're going to spend a few weeks just looking at, uh, no surprise, some of the events around Advent and Christmas. And uh, as we do that... Um, let me ask you, what is it that makes it feel like Christmas most to you? What is it that makes it feel like, how many of you, it's lights, outdoor lights. When you start seeing outdoor lights, there you go, you feel like Christmas. How about uh, Christmas trees? Yeah, a few of you. Music? Christmas, how many start music before Thanksgiving? Oh, wow, look at that. Tell my wife that we can do that. She just bans it till the day after Thanksgiving. Uh, how about uh, snow? Snow? How many snow feels like Christmas? Yep. Presents? Yeah, anyone done with their Christmas shopping? Anyone not started their Christmas shopping? Yeah, I'm with you. Um, there's all kinds of things, I think, that may make it feel like Christmas. I want to talk for this morning and really the next few Sundays, I want to talk about this idea of feeling like Christmas. I've heard this expression, and I guess it's been around a while, but it really caught me these last um, couple weeks as I was listening and maybe paying a little more attention. Anyone hear the expression, all the Christmas feels? Anyone hear that expression, all the Christmas feels? No, a few of you. It's like all, you just want... I hear this on, like, advertisements. I hear this. I see it on signs in places like Hobby Lobby and craft stores. Like, we just want all the Christmas feels, whatever that is. Hot chocolate, warm blankets, PSLs, whatever that is. You just want it to feel like Christmas. And I got to thinking about that. And, I, and what really kind of stuck with me is I wonder if, and I think it's true that many people in our world settle for just that, just the feels at Christmas. That, that all there is, is I just want to feel, maybe I want to feel like I did when I was a kid. Maybe I want to feel like I did years ago. Maybe I just want to feel safe and warm. And I just want to like, whatever it is, I think there's many people at times that just settle for the feelings at Christmas. And the truth is, I think maybe we disconnect feelings at Christmas from anything that would evoke those feelings, from the foundation of Christmas, that will settle for the feeling of feeling nice and joyful and peace and love and hope, but we don't 
maybe necessarily connect it to the reason or the foundation for those feelings, which is a strange thing to do because we wouldn't do that anywhere else. Can you imagine saying, I want to feel like I won a game, but I don't want to play the game. I mean, like that doesn't make any sense, right? I want to feel like I'm a 4.0 GPA student. I just don't want to take any tests or go to any classes. I just want the feeling of doing that. And it's foolish to say, talk about that or think about that in any other context. But it's, I feel like at Christmas, and maybe it makes the least amount of sense because it's the most important, that at times we're like, as, as long as it feels like Christmas, there's a little snow outside, there's a tree in the window, like that's all I want. I think there's many people in our world that will settle for the feeling of Christmas, but disconnect it from the foundation of Christmas. It's like, an, it's like an artificial Christmas tree or an artificial plant, right? Artificial plants are a $1 billion industry worldwide. And that's a whole interesting thing, right? I mean, we have artificial greenery here. But it's a whole interesting thing, right? Because it's like, I want to feel like I have plants. I want to feel like the kind of person who takes care of plants, and nurtures things to greenery. I want my house to look like I'm the type of person that can take care of plants. But I can't take care of plants. I don't want to take care of a plant. I mean, it's a strange thing. We disconnect that. We just want to have the feeling that it brings without necessarily the foundation. I mean, it's like the Christmas tree. If you, if you get a, uh, I say a live or a real, but it's a dead tree you put in your house. Once you cut it, it's dead, Right? If, and I put a dead tree in my house, but, but we put it in there and we think we can kind of keep it alive for a while, right? We put the water in the stand. Well, I cut off the bottom real quick. I'm going to put it in the stand real quick. I'm going to put water in it real quick. Maybe you put that little, anyone use the little vitamin packet? I have never used the little vitamin packet they try and sell me. I don't know if it works or not. I just always like forget it. It's a dead tree anyway. I'm putting it in my house. But no matter how much water and how much vitamins you give it, I don't care. That tree is not growing in your house. Like no one has had their tree like put it up in their house like, oh my goodness, it's hitting the ceiling now because it's growing. Like we, and this is often this disconnection between the feelings. I mean, it's, it, it, to me, it's just equally as foolish to think that a tree is going to grow in your house that you've cut down and has no root is really the same as to think I can have the feelings around Christmas disconnected from any type of foundation or the sentiment of Christmas disconnected from any of the substance of Christmas. So for the next couple of weeks, I want to talk about these words that we talk about with the Advent, peace, joy, hope, love, and make sure that we're not just talking about I want to feel hope, I want to feel peace, I want to feel love and joy, without talking about what is the foundation for those feelings. Because here's why. If you just have the feelings, you're going to be disappointed. In the short term or in the long term, you're going to be disappointed. Because December 26th is going to come. Or January is going to come. Or February. February is the worst, right? I mean, February is the coldest month of the year. And there is nothing going on in February. I mean, it's going to come and you're going to be like, what happened? What happened to peace, love, joy, and hope? What happened to the feelings I had? What happened to all that? Like, like what happened there? And I think when that happens, it's because we have disconnected the feeling that we had from the foundation that's supposed to support that and bring that 
about. So let's talk about that for a few minutes this morning. I want to talk about that for the next three weeks, connecting kind of the roots to the feeling. And this morning, two questions. What's the source of joy at Christmas? First question we're going to answer. What's the source of joy at Christmas? Second question, why don't we feel it? Why do we miss it? Why do we often miss joy at Christmas? Why does our world miss it? But I would say, why even sometimes people within the church who ought to know better sometimes miss joy at this time of year? So first question, what is the source of joy at Christmas? And my short answer is this, joy is connected to the work that God has done. Joy, the, the source of it, the foundation of it, the roots of it, is connected to the work that God has done. It's not just a feeling. It's not something you work up. It's not that you're supposed to kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps and I'm supposed to feel joy. So, you know, no. It's connected to the work that God has done. And if we look at the first account of Jesus coming into the world, what we might call the first Christmas, but that, that first account of God sending his son into the world, when we look at that in the beginning of the Gospels, we see some of the people that first encounter Jesus, and we find out that their feeling of joy, they have it, but it's always connected to something God did. It's never just a feeling. It is connected to something God did. Let's look at Mary. Luke chapter 1, verse 30 to 33. Luke chapter 1, verse 30 to 33. It says about Mary, And the angel said to her, an angel comes to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. And will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. The first thing that Mary's told is this child that you're going to give birth to is going to sit on a throne. Is going to be a king. Is going to bring a kingdom. And for Mary this is important because she's living in a place that's not a very good kingdom. There's not a good king. It's oppressive, it's difficult, it's hard for her and her family. And so for God to say, I'm sending one who's going to be a good king, would be good news. And that would ground her for joy. Going on down in chapter 1, verse 46, it says, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices. I have joy in God my Savior. She has joy. Why? Because not only is God sending a king, but God's sending a savior. God's sending someone to save her out of her situation. Not just the oppressive political, geopolitical situation she lives in, but a savior from herself, from her own heart, from her own sins. And her joy is grounded in her savior. Luke chapter 2, if we move on from Mary and move down to the shepherds, I'm not going to read the entire passage because it was read for us already this morning. But it says this to the shepherds, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of, say these next two words with me. Oh, that did not sound like great joy. Not even close. All right, ready? Here we go. I bring you good news of... Yeah, there we go. That was good. Of great joy that will be for all people. Now, if we stop right there, 
It's just working up a feeling. It's just where I, I bring you good news and great joy. Just, okay, be joyful. But that's not where the angel stops. That's not where the angel stops. Verse 11 says, for, because, here's the reason for your great joy. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And so the feeling of joy that the angels have and that their the shepherds is going to transfer to the shepherds is grounded in the fact that God is sending a Savior. He's sending Christ, which means Messiah, which is the promised one that was supposed to come. And he's sending a Lord who's going to be a good ruler. And he's sending this into the world. And so the angels are joyful. And the shepherds will hear this and they're going to go tell people they're going to be joyful. But it's not a worked up joy. It's not a feeling that they manufacture. It is based on the actual events and work that God was doing. And so our joy is, is built and has to be connected. Our feeling of joy has to be erupt as a response to what God did. Later on in Luke chapter 2, it says this. There's a man named Simeon. Let me read you about Simeon. Now there was in Jerusalem... A man whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. So Simeon, walking around the temple, always in the temple, has this word from God that you will see the consolation of Israel. So just wait, just wait for it. He sees Mary and Joseph, sees this young couple come in with a little baby. I mean, nothing striking about that. Eight-day-old baby, and on the eighth day, every parent, every Jewish, good Jewish parent would bring their baby in on the eighth day for the, for the custom. So nothing striking about that, except God had told them, this is the one you've been waiting for. And he takes the child, and you can think of, if you've seen Lion King, this is not unlike... Like Rafiki taken, like, 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 like Simba takes the child, lifts him up. I mean, this is a very public space. You're in the outer courts. Everyone can see this. No one, this isn't hiding anywhere behind a, you know, behind a curtain or anything like this. He's out in the open. And, and he basically prophesies these words over the baby. But the joy is, this is the Lord's salvation. This is a light that's come into the world. And he has this joy and he has this celebration, not just because he wants to have a feeling of, uh, of just being good. He wants, it's grounded in what God had done. And so Anna, if you go down a little further in Luke chapter 2, there's, a, there's an older woman named Anna. And it says, there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, which hour? The hour Simeon 
had recognized what this baby is. Coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem, for a redeemer. She had been in prayer and fasting and worship, and suddenly God had said, this is the one you've been waiting for. I'm at work. And so all these things coming together are what ground our feeling of joy. It's in the kingdom coming. It's in a Savior, a Messiah, Lord, the consolation being consoled and comforted. It's the light that comes into the world. It's a Redeemer. All these people who had joy at this first Christmas, at this first Jesus first coming into the world, they had a reason for the joy that they had. There's a connection. And it's important for us to understand that when we talk about joy, it is grounded in something real that God did. Because the last thing I want you to feel like is you've got to work up some joy at Christmas. That you've got to feel, you've got to somehow, oh, I'm supposed to feel this way. I don't want to be the downer. I don't want to be the one that's, that, you know, pulling all the air out of the room. I'm supposed to be joy. No, you don't have to work that up. If I'm not feeling joyful, I need to go back and say, what am I connected to? What has God done for me? There's a reason for the joy that we hold to. So we sing Joy to the World. Which Joy to the World is an interesting song because it's not about Christmas um, in one sense. It's not, uh, you'll never, you look at all the verses of Joy to the World. There's no Bethlehem in it. There's no baby in a manger. There's no stable. Uh, there's none of that in Joy to the World. But we sing it at Christmas because it's the start of what God has yet to complete. Joy to the World is really about Jesus' second coming when he comes back again and sets everything right. And so we sing songs, we sing verses like Joy to the World, the Savior reigns. No more let sins and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. That hasn't happened yet, but that's what we're looking forward to. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness. That hasn't all come to be yet, but it's going to come to be. And so we sing about joy coming into the world, but it's grounded in what God has done. It's grounded in what God has done. And let me just pause here for a second before we move on to the next question. Because here's why I take the time to go through that. Obviously, many of you are in here, have been in the church, you've heard the story, you understand it, you get it. But you live in the midst of a world that doesn't get it. You live in the midst of a society, you live among people, you, live, you work among people, you live among neighbors who didn't, not only didn't grow up, but they don't get, like, why are you so happy? Why be happy? Like, okay, it's nice, lights, presents, yeah, we'll all feel good. But they don't understand the foundation of the feeling. And you may have the opportunity. In fact, my prayer is that between now and Christmas, that you will have the opportunity, that God will open a door for you to have a conversation with someone who's like, I, you know, I don't, I, don't get, I don't get all the hoopla. I don't get what it's all about. Like, yeah, I, I want to be happy. I like it. I'm joyful. I don't want to take the air out of the room. I don't want to be the downer. But I really don't understand what the big deal is. And my prayer is that if you are a Christian, that somewhere between now and Christmas, God gives you the opportunity to connect the feeling to the foundation. So let me get to the second question. The second question is this, why do we miss it? Why do we miss it? Why don't we have it all the time? Or why do people miss this foundation for the joy that God has given? I think there's three reasons. 
We miss it because either we don't, one, you don't know about it. You don't know what God did. There's a knowledge gap. Two, you miss it because it doesn't look like you thought it would look. It doesn't look the way we think it should look. Three, we miss it because we just don't think we need what God is offering. That if any of these three things are there, you're going to miss the foundation for the feeling. You're going to miss the, 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 what's supposed to evoke and catalyze that feeling of joy in you. The first one, you can miss real joy when you don't know what has been offered to you. I mean, it's just a knowledge gap. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because if you're here this morning, it means you don't have that knowledge gap. Because even if you're here for the first time, let me tell you, God loves you. He sent his son for you that he might die for you, that you could have a relationship with God. You no longer have that knowledge gap. <laughs> but we live in a world where many people don't understand. I don't have the joy because I don't know. And you think about the first Christmas story or the first Christmas, most people didn't know. Mary and Joseph were there, of course. And then the angels told some shepherds. But that's it. That's it. I mean, the wise men, the kings, the magi, whatever you want to call them, they came about two years later. It was just a small little group that knew. Most of, not only didn't Jerusalem know, I mean, most of Bethlehem didn't take any notice. So there was only joy in that night, in that moment, for a few people that knew about it. Now the message would go out and get told. But only when that knowledge gap was bridged did joy really spread. So you know some people. You know some people that just don't know. And you may think, well, of course they know. Nope. Where would they have learned it? Maybe they didn't grow up in church. They weren't taught it in school. So they know that Christmas is lights and trees and maybe has something to do with church and Christians, but not much else. So there's no connection with feeling and foundation because no one has made the connection. So you're the one. So God has put you in their life to be able to let them know, here's why Christians are so joyful about this. Here's why this is so exciting. Because God saw and God fulfilled a promise and God sent his son into the world to be a savior. And that's why we're so excited about it. Because we needed this. And God did this work. So the first thing is, the first reason we miss it is because sometimes there's a knowledge gap. Second reason people miss it is because it doesn't look like they thought it would look. It doesn't look like, like the answer that people are looking for to find joy in life, they don't think they're going to find it in a stable in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Or maybe in a church in Burlington this year. That they just don't think that's where the answer is going to be found. It just doesn't look like the place they're going to go to find the answers for the biggest questions they have in life. You think of that first Christmas again? 
So if you go to the Matthew, we're not going to turn there, but if you, go, if, you, if you think about the Matthew's account of this, you do have the Magi, you get the, the, the wise men that come, and they come looking for he who was born king of the Jews. So where do they go? They go to the capital city, they go to Jerusalem, and they go to Jerusalem, and they go to Herod's temple, they go to the palace, and they say, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And Herod's like, news to me. And, they, and he just, he, he calls up his religious leaders, you know, he calls them out and he says, hey, where's, where's, this, where's this king of the Jews supposed to be born? Here's what gets me. They give him the right answer. They say the scriptures say he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem, city of David. That's the right answer. And then these magi, they keep going. They go down to Bethlehem. You know, it's about seven miles that way or whatever. They measure distances. I don't know. Uh, but they, he's like, it's that way. So they go down and the star appears and they don't even need their directions. They follow the star. But it's always interesting to me that the religious leaders don't go. I mean, I don't expect Herod to go. But those religious leaders who got it right, who knew the prophecy, they don't go. And I don't know why they don't go, but my guess is because it doesn't look like they thought it would look. Because when they read the scriptures, the Messiah that's supposed to come is supposed to be this king who's going to sit on the throne and set everything right. And surely we would know about it. Not a baby that was born. So they don't go. Because it doesn't look like they thought it would look. And I wonder if today... People miss the foundation for Christmas and joy because it doesn't look, it's not the place that you think you're going to find the answer. It doesn't look like you think it would look. So people walk by churches, they tune out Christmas songs that have a clear gospel message in them playing over the loudspeakers of malls and radios. They come to Christian, they come to children's productions, and they think, well, it's just kids' stories and fables. And they just tune it out because it's not the place they expect to find the answer. Manger scenes are just artistic displays because they, didn't, they don't expect to find the answer in a place like that. Not in Holly and Ivy and the Christmas story, but... Maybe in the halls of Ivy League schools and classrooms and professors. That's where, that's where the answers must be. Not in a place where people gather around and talk about a baby that was born 2,000 years ago. It's just not the place they expect to find the answer. So maybe you sit here today and that's what you think, that it can't be here. Maybe it's in the next TED Talk or the next NPR broadcast or the next, the next, you know, whatever article you read. Maybe that's where the answer is to where joy is to be found, to where the ultimate meaning is, to where I can find, make some sense of the pain in this world, make some sense of what's going on around me. But it's not going to be found in a stable in Bethlehem. And God knew that people would feel this way about Jesus. In fact, the prophet Isaiah, writing hundreds of years before Jesus, in Isaiah 53, wrote this about the one that God would send. He said, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. In other words, God was saying there's nothing special about his outer appearance. You're going to look and say that can't be the answer that we were looking for. I was talking to someone this week and they were just thinking about Jesus and thinking about um, you know, what it would have been like and what he would have been like. And he was thinking, well, he's a first century you know, Jewish man. The average height was about 5'2 of, of Jewish men living in that time. And, and this, guy was, this, this guy I was talking to was about 5'9. He's like, I can't picture like talking down to Jesus. Being like, yes, Lord. And I thought about that for a second. I thought, yeah, but that's exactly part of the point. Like that you would say, no, that, that can't be where I'm looking for the answer. That can't be, he can't have the answer. Like that's, it's got to be something else. And I think sometimes, sometimes people miss the message. They miss the foundation. They miss the meaning because it just doesn't look like the place they expected to find the answer. And so they just keep looking. But the third reason is this. You can miss the work of God and the work God has done and the joy of Christmas because you don't realize how much you need him. Because you don't realize how much you need a savior. And for this one, I think about Herod. Because Herod's the only one that's mad at Jesus being born. Herod's the only one that, that you know, is upset with Jesus being born because he doesn't, you know, anyone that's called a king, he is not a fan of. Because if you're oppressed, then, you know, a savior being born is good news. If you don't feel oppressed, then maybe a savior being born is just news. But if you're the oppressor, then a savior who's also the king and Lord is bad news. And Herod doesn't like that Jesus, you know, is being called king of the Jews, so he tries to kill him. But why? Because Herod doesn't feel any need for a savior. He certainly doesn't feel need for a king or a lord. He's got enough problems with Caesar being king and lord. He doesn't need another one that lives right nearby. He doesn't need it. If you don't see the need for it, you're never going to connect with the true meaning that God is trying to bring. If you don't feel sick, it doesn't matter that someone says they have the antidote. If you don't feel oppressed, it doesn't matter that someone's saying God sent a savior. If you don't feel like a sinner, it doesn't matter that, God say, that someone tells you that God sent someone to save you from your sins. And maybe that's it. Maybe that's what we miss. Because we don't take time long enough to just say, let's look at our own lives. Let's look at our own heart. And when we do, I don't think it takes long to say, I am a sinner who needs a savior. Because as much as the world around me is broken, I know that there's things in my life that I don't want to do, that I wish weren't there, that I want gone out of my life and I haven't been able to get rid of them. Augustine lived in the 4th century, and he wrote a book, um, an autobiography called The Confessions. And it was about his coming to Christ and about his coming to, uh, how he came to follow and know the Lord. And uh, In that book, he actually makes some confessions. And 
Augustine lived a pretty, if you know his background, I mean, there's all kinds of things he could have confessed. He lived a pretty wild life before coming to God. It was as wild as a fourth century man can, I guess. But it was pretty wild. And so when he comes to the book two, and he, he kind of leads up to talking about he's going to make a confession, and you think, okay, here comes the juicy stuff. You know, here he comes. He's going to lay it all out. Like he's going to, what is he going to confess? Is it his, you know, illicit relationships of which he had many? Is he going to, you know, what is he going to confess in this place, in this space? And he talks about a pear tree. He talks about when he was running around with a gang of kids in his younger days, a bunch of ne'er-do-wells and no good, no gooders, do-gooders, whatever. Bad people. He's running around with them. And they see a pear tree. And the pear tree is laden down with fruit. But to be honest, it's not that attractive, the, the fruit. And they're not really hungry. But they shake the tree and they take the pears anyway. And they take the pears and they're not their land. It's not their tree. And they know they shouldn't do it, but they do it anyway. And Augustine confesses that this was the thing that really convicted him. This was the sin that really showed him that he needed a savior. And he writes this in the book, in the Confessions. He says this. This is maybe you wonder why. Here's what he writes. Behold now, let my heart tell thee what it was seeking there. That I should be gratuitously wanton. Having no inducement to evil, but the evil itself. It was foul, and I loved it. I loved to perish. I loved my own error. Not that for which I erred, but for the error itself. Base souls falling from thy firmament to utter destruction, not seeking aught through the shame, but the shame itself. In other words, Augustine saying, I didn't need the fruit. I didn't want it. Like, I just wanted to do something I knew was wrong. I just wanted to do it because I knew I shouldn't do it. And if it was just Augustine, and if it was just him, we might say, well, that's, that's his problem. But it's not just him, is it? Because it's all of us. That there's times that there's something within us that there's a bent towards sin. There's a bent towards just, I want my way and no one's going to tell me any other way. And I'm going to go that way. In fact, there's a, a psychology professor, Paul Bloom, uh, who put out a TED Talk recently in March. Um, and he's a professor at the University of Toronto. He's a pro psychology professor emeritus at Yale. Not a Christian. In fact, I looked at his Wikipedia page. I wanted to make sure between services. I'm like, I said he's not. I want to make sure. It clearly says on his Wikipedia page, atheist, rationalist, no belief, anything. Right on his Wikipedia page. I wanted to make that clear. But he actually uses Augustine in some of his talk and his study. And he goes this because he says there is something within us that seems to want to just do wrong for wrong's sake. And he's trying to figure out what it is that would cause us to do that. In fact, his TED Talk that has 87,000 views is called The Surprising Psychology Behind Your Urge to Break the Rules. Your urge to break the rules. In other words, we all have this within us. 
Somehow this desire that just wants to break the rules, just wants to flout it. Just want, you tell me not to do it and I'm going to do it. Like just, there's something within us that wants, that, that at times wants to do that. And he's trying to explain that. And he, one of the examples he gives of, of how this happens, he gives this uh, example of this Tide Pod challenge or whatever that happened uh, uh, last year. And it's, it, I hate calling it a challenge. I don't know. I don't, it's, not, it's not a challenge. It's a joke. It's worse. It's dangerous. But this, this idea that this went around, circulated on social media, that kids would challenge each other to eat Tide Pods, uh, which is crazy, right? And then Procter & Gamble, who makes Tide, like, realize this. They start putting out these service announcements, like, don't eat Tide Pods. That's dumb. Don't do that. It's dangerous. Like, they're not food. And so they put it out, they get Rob Gronkowski to do ads, like, Rob, go tell people not to eat Tide Pods. And Rob's like, okay. So he goes and tells people not to eat Tide Pods. What do you think happens? More people. All the statistics say that more kids started to eat Tide Pods. And, you know, Paul Bloom just gives us an example. Like, we have this world where it just happens, where someone tells us not to do it, and we're going to do it. There's something within us. And Bloom is trying to explain what it is, and he's got some psychological ideas of what this could be, but I think you're just hitting on something the Bible calls a bent towards sin. That we have a nature within us that bends towards depravity, that bends towards sin. And if I would just take half a minute to think about it, I'd say, yeah, that's me. I've got that too. And so I do need a savior. And so I do need someone who's going to save me from this. Who's going to save me from this life? Who's going to save me from this work? But if you don't realize that, if you don't think you need it, then you won't connect to the real foundation that joy is. Because the amount of joy you have is proportionate to the size of the gift you think you've received. The amount of joy you have is proportionate to the size of the gift you think you've received. And this is why you can be sitting in church and you can be a follower of Jesus and you can be the most miserable person anyone's ever met. Because you may not realize the size of the gift that you have received. You may not realize what God has done for you. Have you ever gotten a, a gift in your life and you felt like you had to manufacture joy and excitement? Like you knew the person that you knew the person that, that, that bought you the gift, is super excited about the gift, is super excited. And they, they're super excited to see you open this gift. And they're just waiting and they're like, I can't wait to see you open this. My son has so uh, seen this process so many times that he actually developed a resolution for his family to follow because of this. That, uh, and I won't read it to you now, but it's pretty clever. But the idea is it's not fair, right, to you to sit there and say, I can't wait for you to see what I, what I, what I got you. And then you open it and you're like, ah, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> Like you're trying because you know they want you to be excited, but it's not that exciting. 
it's not really what you want. I don't even know how they pulled it off. And you, like that, like, no way. I never could have guessed this, but it's perfect, and it's for me, and it's way more than I expected. And you don't have to manufacture anything. You just erupt with joy in that moment. That's what this is like. That's what understanding what God has saved you from is like. Jesus said it this way. He said it's as if a man found a treasure in a field. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, Jesus says, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Jesus says that's what it's like, what God has done for you. That you, it's like you find this and you found something. You're like, I'm going to cover it up because I don't own this field. But I'm going to come back and buy this field. And I'm going to sell my house. And I'm going to sell my car. And I'm going to sell my kids. And I'm going to, maybe not your kids. Stop short of that. But I'm going to sell clothing. I'm going to sell like everything. The dog, everything's out. And people are like, can I buy that? Yeah, you can have it. And you are joyfully selling it. Why? Because this is so much greater than anything I have. Jesus said, that's what the kingdom of God's like. That's what what God has done for you is like. That's what forgiveness, that's what salvation, that's what, that's how good God has done to you. And, And if you get that, if you get that, then whatever God asks of you, you say, yes, God, I'll sell it, I'll give it away. God, joyfully, it's yours. Because when you get that, when you get God, when you get what God did for you, you don't have to manufacture a feeling of joy. You don't have to pretend to be happy. You don't have to put on a face. You understand that, oh my gosh, God, this is way more than I deserve. This is way more than I expected. This is perfect. This is exactly what I needed. And I can walk in joy. Is it done? Nope. We live in a world that's still not complete joy to the world. We're on our way there. But I can rejoice with Mary and the shepherds and Simeon and Anna because I can say, I can know what God has done and that God is at work in this world. So I'm going to ask our worship team to come back and we're going to think about just a closing song and thinking about what God has done for us. Let me leave you with a scripture from Colossians. Colossians chapter three, Colossians chapter one, verses eleven through fourteen says this: Being strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, He has delivered us. Here's your reason for joy. Here's your foundation for the feeling. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's our reason for joy. That's what God offers. That's what God brings. So just before we sing, two implications, two uh, two applications. One is this. If you're in here and you're a Christian and you're a follower of Jesus, how does this apply to you? I've said it already in this service. My prayer is, is that God will use you. God will use you to connect someone, to understand why the feeling of joy is grounded and has a foundation in the work of God. 
that you will have the opportunity to explain to someone who, who, and I don't know what that conversation looks like, but I pray that you will be attentive to the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit opens up a door for you and someone, you know, it's an off comment, it's just an open, small open door. is like, I don't get it. I don't understand it. Like, what's this all about? I don't understand what the big deal is. I don't understand why everyone makes such a big deal out of it. Whatever it is that you just, at that moment, you might say to God, God, is this an open door? Lord, are you opening the door for me to talk about you? Are you opening the door for me to help this person understand what the foundation is? That you might just be able to share your story in that moment. Say, well, I, you know, if you really want to know, the truth is that the way, reason Christians are so excited about this and so is because we believe that we are caught up in our own sin and that we have no hope apart from God saving us, and he sent the Savior, Jesus. And maybe it goes on from there, but something maybe as simple as that, that the door opens, that I pray that you will have an open door like that, and you will walk through it between now and Christmas. You'll help people connect all that they see around them that they don't understand with the foundation of what it means, what God did. Second application, if you're in here and you are not a Christian, my hope and my prayer is that you will, now that you know, that you will see that the answer that you've been looking for to where can I find hope, where can I find joy, where can I find the things I'm looking for in this world is not found in the next article you read, is not found in the next great book that comes out because you've searched, you've looked, and no one's come up with it yet but that you would see that there's a God who sent his son, that you might have life through him, that you might be set free and have salvation, not only um, from yourself, but from sin and from the eternal consequences of it, that you might have life in him. That you would see that God loves you and that you would put your life and your trust in him. That it's not about a feeling. People in this room, the stories that you hear, the one you heard just this morning. I had to come across the ocean and the water to learn about God's love for me. It's not about a feeling that's worked up. It's not about something we pretend to have. It's grounded in the work that God did. That God did 2,000 years ago, sending his son to set us free from our sins. So I pray that you would come to the place where you would put your hope and your trust in him and follow him. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come to you today. Lord, and thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for, God, I thank you for the account that was set down in scripture. That we might understand what you did and how those events came about. Lord, I thank you that... The faith that we have is grounded and founded in the actual events that have taken place of what you did in this world. And so, Lord, I pray for those of us that call ourselves Christians, those of us that follow Jesus, that you would help us to, in the world that we live, to connect these feelings we talk about at this time of year with the truth of what you have done. And Lord, there'll be some that still won't understand. There'll be some that still won't believe that that's where the answer can be found. But there'll be some who will say, tell me more. And Lord, I pray that you open up those doors. Give us those opportunities 
to share that message of hope. And Lord, for those who are in here today who are, have a desire to put their faith and their hope and their trust in you, to be set free from their sin, and, and if that's you, I just pray that in your own words, in your own space, that you would pray and just let God know that that's my desire. I'm tired of trying to save myself. I'm trying to, trying to fix myself. Lord, I come to you and I give my life to you and I want to follow you. And I want you to be the Lord of my life. And Lord, for those that would pray that prayer and say those words to you this morning, I know that you will be faithful to your word, that you will draw close to them as they draw close to you, that you will take up your residence within them to dwell in them, cleanse them and forgive them of their sin, cleanse them from unrighteousness that they might know and follow you and be a child of you, Lord. And so, Lord, God, we put ourselves in your hands and we're thankful that what we believe and what we feel is grounded in what you have done. So guide us and bless us even as we consider that for these last few moments of this service together.